Welcome to the A Fire Podcast. Now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. What's more powerful? An empire or a network? How is it that successful, powerful companies fail? And where are we going with ESG? Is there a future there? For the industry? For all of us? We're fortunate enough to be able to listen to Sonny Misser, who's the CEO of Accountability, to bring his experience and his insight into a discussion around networks, companies, and ESG. No, 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 no because it's just fascinating. You, you, you see an empire as capable of a great amount of thrust and velocity and speed and action, but it's actually very brittle. So the resilience factor is very different than a considerably weaker, seeming, flexible, softer network. Uh, and, 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 it's, and it's interesting, you know, geopolitical, macroeconomic, and other shifts uh, that, uh, that, that are likely to occur. And I often, you know, attribute it to, um, to one of my favorite groups, musical groups, the Eagles. And I don't know whether it was Henley or whether it was uh, Walsh or whether it was Glenn Fry, but I think it was one of them who said it. He said, uh, you know, there are basically five or six fundamental stories in history over time, just five or six. And he said, and they desperately keep repeating themselves over and over again like they never really happen, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and and, and when, you, when you look back at that, to some degree, it is so very true. Uh, when, when you see history repeat itself and, and the core essence of some of these uh, stories uh, are people. Anyway, that's, I'm, I, 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 this was something that was an important question that I had, and I had no answer to this, but I think your line of questioning and thinking has certainly raised a very important issue because, you know, do we need, well, clearly monarchy in its truest and purest form uh, as an autocracy is an outdated concept, right? Uh, as a way of governing, but that I, would raise. I, I'm partial. Point. I'm biased. I would say yes. Bias, <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, I was, I was hoping you, you were not talking about our presidency, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. But, but when, when you look at that, uh, you know, maybe our form of governance as a country, okay, uh, could perhaps get a little more genuinely collaborative, right? And, and I don't mean collaboration just amongst the Congress or the Senate, but the people who vote to put their elected officials in power, the connectivity between the voice of the people, the will of the people, and the needs of the people being translated into policies, actions, legislation, whatever the process of governance is. Uh, because there seems to be a very, very strong disconnect uh, and, and one of the most common disconnects why people vote for different regimes every cycle is because, well, hey, I, you know, X, Y, Z, I voted for you, but you never seem to listen to me. Uh, but I, I was just wondering, you know, do you see the fundamental model of governance in the Western Hemisphere evolving? Because in some ways, we are hundreds of years old. Yeah. When you look at our constitution, our modes, our mechanisms, and I'm not talking about 
electoral colleges and seats and all those levels of detail. I'm talking right at the, the outset. The, the collaboration and the connectivity between a common person who gives you his or her valuable vote and, and, and what do you do with his or her interests mm-hmm. and in terms of representing them. I'd be curious, Gunnar, did you have a thought on this? Well, I don't because know. You have thoughts on a lot of stuff, I, Gunnar. Yeah, I, I think a lot. I don't know if I'm cool. qualified to do so, but uh, they, I, I think what's interesting to me, now this is coming as someone who spent a lot of time working uh, on innovation uh, in my past life as a consultant, is that change, change is an interesting thing in that we hate it. Um, it's, it's painful and we'll do just about anything we can to avoid it unless there's just no Mm. other option. Uh, so when, when people stand up and say, Hey, we're going to go innovate and it's going to be lots of fun, you know, God bless them for, for being so optimistic about it, but that's not how it works. Um, it only works if something else doesn't. So you, you asked the question about the U.S. government system. I mean, are we going to see some some change here? Are we going to see some modification, given the, the world it is? And and I believe yes. And and I believe not only that, that it has been for some time. Um, and I think certainly the last 10 years has, has shown a lot of us that um, we're still negotiating what the heck we are and, and what we do and how we function. I think there's some tactical things that we do that, yes, they're based in the 18th century in terms of how we That's do exactly things. right. Um, mm-hmm. And, and there, there are times where, you know, the efficiency part of me says, gee, this is madness. It's insane. It's also compelling to me when I was watching change and innovation happen within companies was that um, the most powerful change and the path to follow is how people are jury rigging what you have. <laughs> so think about Steve Jobs. Everyone talks right. about how he predicted the future. He did not predict the future. He watched what people were doing and he, he produced according to that. So the, my favorite example is, is uh, what happened with iTunes and how they took over you know, half the business in seven years. Um, and the inspiration that he once talked about was mixtapes and how we all adapted an inferior product, the LP, into something that we could use, which was a mixtape of the songs that we wanted. So you create that in iTunes and then you take over the market. Why? Because the record business thought that we, there was actually a demand for records. There never was. There was only a wow. demand for songs and we were willing to pay for a long playing record in order to get the songs. Every once in a while, if you were a real fan of the Eagles, you'd listen to every single song, but that was more the exception than anyone else. This is, by the way, the rock and roll podcast uh, for A-Fire. Um, so we'll, we'll probably name check a couple of other bands by the time we're, we're, we're done. Um, but I look at the government the same way and I say, all right, there are all these things that are weird. You're like, why are they there? The, you know, that doesn't right. make sense in this day and age that we have adapted around that we have created systems around and meanings around them. The question is, the adapted version of what we're doing, if we really understand it, if we understand what it is around the electoral college that we're doing now, even though it seems bizarre, um, what is it around our relationship to states or, or land being really the, the, the definition of votes versus people, right. Um, right. all of which are when you look at them, you go, this is madness. It does not make any sense. Um, but 
if we look at how people are using it and what they're doing with it, it might give us clues about what the next step should be and where it should go. And I, I say this without knowing the answer, but thinking that we need, instead of looking at things and going, I hate this, this, does, this is stupid, this doesn't make any sense, I love this, let's hold on to that. That's hard because it's gonna be subjective and there's, you know, there's gonna be 300 million people that may or may not agree with you. Um, but if you look at it from the standpoint of where are the masses going, what are people trying to do with this, that may tell us what to do. That may tell us how to adapt. This, this is fascinating insight, Gunnar, because you know, you know, clearly you spent many years at some of the world's largest companies uh, in the financial services sector, the sector of innovation, in the, in the, in the areas of managing change and transformation. And it, it, it reminds me of an example of change. Uh, and you said something interesting. You said, you know, uh, when almost like Churchill said that you can count on the Americans to do the right thing when they have exhausted every other reasonable alternative. Right. And you said something to that effect about change, right? Um, but it's interesting that incremental change versus radical change, what works. And there was often, it was likened to the, to the example of a frog, and I'm a big animal lover, so I don't recommend any of you do and try this at home uh, as an experiment. But if you take a, a saucepan of boiling water and you take a live frog and throw it into the saucepan, it jumps out of it because the water is too hot. But please, of course, do not do this at home. Do not ever think of doing that. Uh, but on the other hand, if you take a saucepan filled at room temperature and you place a frog in the middle of the saucepan so it can breathe and it's hanging out there and then you give it a little bit of frog food or whatever frog food is i don't know so it, it's quite you know relaxed and then you start increasing the flame but you start increasing the flame in a very gradual manner so the frog gets its body and systems adjusted to the increase in temperature, perhaps two degrees or three degrees over a period of time. And ultimately, you can have the water boiling and the frog ceases to live because it does not jump away from the degree of change that it is facing. And, uh, and, and, I, and I fundamentally hope that we, as both a nation as well as individuals, uh, do the right thing and, and don't end up in hot water, for yeah. lack of a better word. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> it, 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 always a disturbing uh, story, uh, metaphor, when you think about that um, in terms of, yeah. gee, does that mean yeah. that I'm sitting in boiling water and I don't know it? <laughs> uh, but I'm struck by the notion that has come around in a lot of different circles, especially when people are trying to change their own personal behavior and their own lives, is this notion that you have to hit rock bottom. You have to hit a wall. That if you do, then you can admit and understand that you're in boiling water and you can change. That I saw it over and over again. Companies have come up with brilliant brilliant inventions that could have made them so much money, but it was so difficult to consider changing or perhaps losing their existing business. Think about Kodak. Who's Kodak, right? I'm, there, there, there's now a generation that doesn't know who Kodak is, right? 
or, or Polaroid. Um, and what they had in their hands, they had it in their hands Absolutely. and they didn't use it um, because the change is too hard. Oh no, I'm going to have to go tell my shareholders that we are going to lose half of our existing business in order to go into a new untested business with a new right. technology right. that we think will just completely take over. That's really hard. And the older the company is, the harder it is to do the more successful the company is. I mean, that's the worst part. Yes. If you're more rich, successful. you that's can't it. do that's it because <laughs> your life is pretty good. You know, I've good. got what I need, right. you know, everything right. else. But to be able to be uncomfortable enough to, you know, to acknowledge this is really awful. Right. And that I hope, I pray, is happening now. Now we had COVID, which is really awful. And it's awful in a creepy way. It's like, right. it's not like suddenly, you know, there's rocks falling out of the sky, but as the, the months wear on, we're all kind of going a little stir crazy. Um, this is awful. Then we have right. another awful, which is storms like what hit Texas, unthinkable. Unthinkable. You know, 69 people dying because they didn't have electricity. I, I just uh -huh. awful and going, oh my gosh, well, how, you know, we've got a whole infrastructure that is vulnerable. That's right. Um, you know, and we, you know, it hasn't been that long ago that we had some blackouts on the East Coast and things like that. And thankfully, they were at times where, you know, people were okay and it didn't last that long. Right. But still, the, we're much more vulnerable than we realize. And when we get hit like that over and over again, I feel like there's, there's someone looking out for us that's saying, I'm going to hit you until you understand that until this understand. is bad. <laughs> Amen. Well said. Because, you know, and I think the key point that you make here, Gunnar, is sometimes the more successful you are as an organization, and you're making money, as you said, the harder it is to change, despite knowing that you're going to go and hit a wall. In, in, in a matter of time. Mm -hmm. And you're just going to hit that wall faster because you're traveling that much quicker, right? Because when you mention the two companies, these are two American icons, right? Yeah. Uh, we, 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 and when I say icons, you know, having grown up in different parts of the world, in Asia and in Africa, uh, you know, we used to have a de facto saying, can you get me a Xerox? What they meant was a copy. Mm -hmm. Right? Can you right. get me a Xerox? Or you know, do you want? Can, can I get a Polaroid of you? Meaning one of those little sticky thingies that come out of the bottom tray uh, of those. You know, yeah. I, I'm dating myself. Right? Um, I have one of my dear friends and a classmate who worked for Polaroid for most of his life, um, and and now he f figured out that he'll have to spend many more years working before he can retire, and. Uh, Eastman Kodak was my client many years ago. Uh, and it is sad to see in some ways that what we call these giants, I won't call them dinosaurs, but these giants, these icons, uh, who could have perhaps taken the option that you suggested, but decided to stick the course uh, and, and paid such serious consequences. Uh, and, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I hope, because it was interesting, you know, when I graduated from, from business school, uh, we, it was in the 90s, I reluctantly admit, uh, and, and I think the year was probably uh, when I, we had a little summit uh, between my firm that I worked for and the Sloan School of Management at MIT. 
and it was a who's who star cast, all star cast of CEOs and MIT professors. And the theme was inventing the organization of the 21st century. And um, it, was, it was quite a thing, right? Because in 94, yeah. 95, I mean, how cool is that? Figuring out what the organization of the 21st century would look uh, like. When did, we, when did we stop saying the 21st century as if it was really cool in the future? Right. But there was like this period of time where, you know, you, you, right. someone would do a conference and they talk about the 21st century and you'd all go, ooh, yeah, okay. Yeah, you know, that's and, exactly yeah. true. <laughs> right? So I'm, I'm so glad that I wasn't alone and I had some company with you, Gunnar. It's just that we didn't know each other. And, and we had this seminar and of course, you know, you're a fresh business school graduate. It means so much to you. You're in the company of CEOs. And I'll, I'll tell you some of the CEOs who were there in that, on, on that panel. There was a really, what we thought was the coolest CEO of them all. He was Jim Manzi of, of what was called the Lotus Notes Corporation. Mm. Lotus Notes was like the word, uh, you know, Microsoft Word, right? But we all used Lotus Notes in those days. Uh, and then we had Richard Tierlink, who was the CEO of Harley-Davidson, right? So it was quite an assortment of CEOs. But what struck me most, uh, and then we had Edgar Broffman, and uh, we had another CEO of National Westminster Bank. Uh, and, and each of these CEOs had very unique perspectives on what they figured the next century would bring. But it was an MIT professor who gave a word of caution. Uh, and, and his word of caution was, he says, ladies and gentlemen, all of you are very focused on taking a corporation or an organization from the 20th century and transforming it, tweaking it, changing it, modernizing it, and making it suitable for the 21st century, right? My assertion, the professor said, is that in 1995, we're talking about the organization of the 21st century. I'm challenging you, ladies and gentlemen, the organization of the 21st century has not been invented as yet. And, and, and that stayed with me because we all thought we were so cool with the likes of the GEs and the IBMs and all of these big giants, we were invincible, untouchable. But nobody had heard of Amazon, Google, Facebook, and the list goes on. Right. Mm -hmm. So what we have seen in terms of changes are perhaps yet to be created. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and that could be a very transformed world that we live in. I mean, we, we should definitely take this conversation over, over coffee and dinner because, you know, you are an intellectual powerhouse in terms of the experiences. I, I, you know, I, I, I've known you and I've spoken with you before, but I'd never realized, uh, you know, the, the kind of corporations and companies and organizations you work for, uh, which which truly gives you a very rich, unique, and a diverse sense of experiences, and 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 what one brings to the in the words of the great late Kofi Annan at the United Nations, he says, "Where people stand on issues depends on where they sat." Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So where, where you sit, and therefore you stand on certain issues. So I think the more places you sit, Gunnar. Yeah. The, the more you, the more you understand. The more you see. The more you understand. Uh, Absolutely. You know, it, it's so much to me also that I, I, I think may be an area to explore when thinking about how companies get stuck. Great companies get stuck. Great people get stuck. 
um, is that we, you know, your, your professor was able to kind of see through it, but there is a level of storytelling. We tell ourselves stories about what are we and what does this mean? And quite often, and I do it too, we all do it. We all tell stories and yes. we, we can't help ourselves. But those stories are kind of provisional frameworks for understanding what the heck's going on right now and to make some sort of prediction about what's going to happen two seconds from now. But that's all they are. And, and yet we hold on to them as if they are physical and real things, these stories. And they make us do strange things nice. that are counter to our own you know, needs and desires that are counter to health, happiness, uh, and so forth, um, because we think the story is real and, and, and not what's in front of us, not the person that's, that's in right. front of us, not the issue, not, the, not the, the poor frog that get him out of that pan, please. You know, all that, we have to be there and not in the story. Right. But, but that being well, said, sir. you know, that being said, and, and, and not that I want to, you know, well, sure. I want to talk about how great institutional real estate is, but I, I do think that there's something interesting that's happened there because of their close tie to the pension industry uh, when it comes to ESG. Is that, you know, obviously the institutional money has said, this is it. This is what you're doing. You know, you're going down this road. We started with sustainability because, well, what the hey, uh, the built environment is half of the carbon problem. So that makes sense for us to focus on that. Um, we do surveys every year at AFIRE. Uh, of our members, of our 200 members, to find out, all right, where are you thinking? One of the things that we've been getting more and more feedback on over the years has been around ESG and around how many people are taking it seriously and how seriously. You know, how important is it to your investment decisions when you right. buy a building, when you build a building, whatever. So right. uh, record number for this year, uh, 93%. I'm actually wow. starting to, I'm starting to wonder who the seven are. You know, I, I, I don't know if I, <laughs> I don't know if I want to, you know, I don't know if I want to party with them, but, but the 93%, I think are saying this is important inside that 93, 31% of the total say that it's required. They can't make, they can't make an investment unless they address ESG. Now, right, right. Who knows how much, how far, how deep, all of them, you know, a lot of them have different metrics that they're going by. The Europeans certainly have one of the more rigorous for the, for the building industry. You know, they are all looking at it and they're all paying close attention. I've never seen numbers like that. I mean, to be honest, never seen that good a number come through, not at AFIRE. I, I was struck 15 years ago when suddenly the entire world of institutional investors, I literally wrote an article one year where I interviewed a bunch of institutional investors and asked them, well, what are you doing around sustainability? And they said, well, right. you know, we, we do recycling in the office, you know, I think, you know, <laughs> <laughs> otherwise my fiduciary duty is to the investor and I want to make sure yeah, I'm getting right. them the best That's return. Right. Uh, a year later, they were all in. They were all in a year later. It, it, it was so fast when it happened. And, and I, I'm so excited to see this, to see this, you know, from, from the institutional investors. I think we also get a lot of, feedback that people are trying to figure out, well, how much more should I do? How do I understand the, the, you know, the, 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 the uh, governance and the, uh, and the societal issues? How do I make sure those things are taken care of? They're not doing it enough yet. They want to do more. Uh, so there's a little bit of, I don't know what to do, but 
what I'm struck by with this is that one person, and it wasn't just one person, it never is, but yeah. there was one person that, that made, I think, an outsized impact on the network of institutional real estate, which is a network. His name was Niels Koch. Uh, he was uh, head of uh, He real was estate. the chair of GRESB, wasn't he? He invented GRESB. He's the Dutchman. He's I've I've yeah. spent time with Neil. Yeah, he's, he's moved to New York, so you know you should probably hook up with him. We should get him. together yeah. with him because we <laughs> hung out in the in my office, and yeah. he was because we're very close to Nerit and uh, with you know the Nerit CEO, Mr. Steve Wexler, their chief operating officer, Mr. Sheldon Groner, terrific folks, really pushing this organization hard and pushing it to the needs of their members in the right direction, and I met Niels through them. Um, many years ago, so has he moved to New York? Because yeah, he he's was working based out of yeah Europe. out of Europe. He's he's working now for a data firm. Um, the last I talked to him, which was about a, a year ago. But uh, gosh, I mean, you know, COVID just yes. makes it really hard sorry, to keep sorry, up with people. Um, but it, he part of what I found interesting about him is, is that he was not necessarily the first person you would think that would have that impact um, across Europe so quick. Right, uh, it was quick, and it echoed across the globe. And yeah, did it happen as fast in North America as it happened in Europe? No, but we're so intertwined, and to your point, so interconnected, that if we have a few of these pension plans starting to shift, and, and certainly, I mean, we're seeing it with American firms like Black, BlackRock, et cetera, but it, it has an amazing impact across the field. Um, and uh, that gives me Hope. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe there's cause for me to still be pessimistic. I don't know. But I, I, that does give me hope. Uh, you, you know, I think, you know, just just looking back and, and, and bringing this back to real estate for a moment, I have a huge sense of optimism and hope in the real estate sector, and especially when you look at institutional real estate, right? Um, not necessarily just because of the institutional investors' pressure, but also the response from the real estate industry. Okay? Uh, initially, probably cautious and conservative to start with. And you're probably right, while it was a 93% that said, yes, change is important, we need to do something, and let's start with something we can, such as recycling. And I'm giving an extreme example. Yeah. But I think the transition is occurring. Okay. And organizations such as GRESB or uh, NARIT and others and AFIRE are playing a huge role in this because the tone at the top is, is, is sending a very unified and a consistent message. And the message isn't that, you know, whether we as organizations need to behave differently, that you're giving a holistic message. Uh, a, a better performing, a, a higher ESG performance in this specific sector, a more effective communication with your stakeholders, a better disclosure mechanism transparently and openly, a consistent drive to improve yourself in the areas of deficiency, all of these collectively will lead to better solutions of fair and affordable housing. All of these will lead Okay, to a more uh, holistic view and a, and, a, and, a, and a targeted view of low-income groups or at-risk communities. So I think I think it's 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 an overall. Uh, it, it, I had a question for you, 
And this is something I wasn't sure of uh, as such. Recently, there was a huge global survey done by a large public relations firm, a global public relations firm, and they do this survey every year around trust and value and so on and so forth. And they reviewed, I, I think they surveyed over 33,000 respondents in 28 countries between the ages of 25 and 64. Uh, and these guys were in the top 25, uh, 25th percentile of earning in their, in their age group. Uh, and, and, and clearly they were aware of world issues. Two thirds of the respondents this year on the issue of trust and ethics and value and competence felt that government was doing a terrible job at what they do. And that same two thirds more or less felt that businesses and CEOs need to take over and perform the role or the gap or deficiency that government leaves because they viewed businesses and organizations as more competent. Now, how would you feel if, if you saw uh, less government intervention in, in, in our field, real estate, uh, and, 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 and more business and CEO engagement, whether it's at the REIT level or through a different platform? That's a difficult one to answer. L and less regulation, more uh, free I mean, market. I think most people would feel more comfortable just to, you know, regulation less. Yes, absolutely. I think most people would, would feel comfortable with that. At the same time, we're dealing with a multi-tiered government. So, and, you know, you know as much as the, the federal government in the United States is important, certainly, and, and, and <laughs> no question, um, and there are things they can do to make real estate investing in the U.S. really hard, um, which they have. <laughs> but, uh, but I wonder, and I'm more concerned at the local level, because local. Uh, real estate is um, interconnected. Um, there's a tendency for people to think of a single building all by itself, but it never is. It's plugged into a network, uh, whether it's for utilities and electricity and everything else, or it's the social fabric of that city, the connection to the workforce, the connection right. to uh, every part of it. So whether you're dealing with data centers that you're investing in or, 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 or office buildings or apartment buildings, it doesn't, or single family homes, you're still actually investing in a city. So do you want, and, and by city, I don't just mean downtown, I mean the metro right. area, whatever. Okay. But do you want to invest in a city, in your piece of the city? I just took a share of New York. If I buy an office building, I have a share of New York City. Right. Do you want to invest in a New York City where it's, you know what, it's whatever you want. You know, you know businesses, you can run things, you know, uh, you know. You, you, you seem good. BlackRock, why don't you run this part of town and then we'll have, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, th there's a whole be careful what you wish for sort of thing. Uh, I think we've spent a lot of time in this country wishing for less regulational oversight, less, uh, right. less government influence. And we're now at a point in history where we've had a disaster and we're like, where is everybody? Can someone help me? And I, I completely, you know, that is the struggle of government, I think, to figure out What's the right touch? How light? How heavy? Uh, but I, but government is not just big government. 
it, it's it's little government, and I think that little government is where we need more competence. We need we need to understand what the rules are better. Um, do they need to be the same in New York as they are in you know Austin, Texas? No, but they have to be clear um, in terms of where they are for a real estate an institutional real estate investor who's long term, who's not going for the quick hit, who pays attention to risk because the risk is only gonna you know. The more free it is, the more risky it is, the more you have volatility, True. everything True. else. So, yeah, I mean, there, it, it's hard for me not to find a regulation I hate if I look at a list. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's interconnected. And, yeah, that regulation may have been put in place in, in 1852, and therefore, really, we should look at it again. But at the same time, what happens if I let go of it? And... You know, there's these unintended consequences that are there. I want to wipe out every single zoning law that's out there, personally. I think zoning drives me bananas. doesn't make any sense. And it tends to artificially inflate the price of land. And whenever that happens, you make it harder for people to afford to live and work there. Um, but for the people who already have land, it's awesome, <laughs> you know, because you're going to make true. more money. So it's, it's a tricky one. But as soon as you start pulling that thread out of the sweater... There's going to be consequence, and and it's yes, not all going to be wonderful. You know, it's going to be hard. Yes, yes. No, that's a great analogy because you pull that thread and you start unraveling the sweater, and you find out there are holes in areas that you didn't want holes that that to be. You know, uh, so it's 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 it's, it's a great answer. I mean, I I the more I listen to you, the more I reflect about it, uh, and it seems to make a lot of sense. Um, uh, gonna everything that you say makes a lot of sense. So what, well, what can I do? I, I should be as do you. you. And and I've taken so much of your time at this point. Uh, and uh, I think we should probably schedule another talk uh, on, on subjects far and wide. And uh, I I need to uh, encourage everyone who's listened uh, to this podcast and and been on the edge of your seat by 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 Sunny and, and my conversation uh, to make sure you subscribe. Uh, we have. Uh, the AFIRE podcast is listed on several uh, listing services, some of them you may have heard of, like Apple, Amazon, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. Um, if you haven't yet, make sure that you sign up, and then you'll get these delivered right to you twice a week. So uh, make sure that you subscribe. All that being said, uh, Sonny, thank you so much for being a part of the AFIRE podcast. Got to thank you. Thank you for inviting me, giving us this platform. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe. It's it's a great show, right? Uh, and uh, gonna looking forward to continuing this conversation with you, ho hopefully both on the air and off the air. Thank you, Sonny. It was an absolute pleasure. You've been listening to the AFIRE Podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. No content included here is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information, including the AFIRE Podcast, may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in the AFIRE Podcast are those of its respective contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE. To learn more about the AFIRE Podcast, including underwriting guest opportunities, visit afire.org slash podcast.